0: Ephesians chapter 3, hear God's word with us this morning. Paul writes this, he says, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for the Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is not made known to the sons of men in other generations, that it has now been revealed to His holy apostle and the prophets by the Spirit. Mystery is this: the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, th- this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the, the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring delight for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who, who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, whom, in whom we have the boldness and access with confidence uh, through our faith in him. So I ask you to not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Well, the painting on the wall caught his attention immediately. The painting was by a man by the name of Domenico uh, Fite in which the title of this was Behold the Man. It's a painting of Jesus. And upon his head was this thorn of crowns. And, and the, one of the crowns was, was piercing his skull in which the blood was kind of dripping down his face. Below this picture was the picture of this, I have done this for you. What have you done for me? As he kind of sat memorized by what he saw in front of him, it was... It's really the words below this painting that that had a radical impact on his life. Because here he was realizing, yes, he loved Jesus. In so many ways, he wasn't living for for Jesus. So this was a man by the name of Zindendorf. So as he sat there, as he's captured by this painting, he realizes he has to do something. There's got to be a change taking place in his life. So he decides right then and there as he's staring at this photo, this this painting, that he's going to give his life over to Jesus fully. He was fully going to live for him from now on. Let me tell you that the, the radical impact that this one sacrifice had, this ripple effect... Because Zindendorf, he, he goes and he forms this community a couple years later, and he forms this community who follows their leader in this commitment to, to self sacrifice and denial. In fact, this church was called the Moravian Church, a community that this in, they began to have this kind of prayer, kind of chain going on, in which one person was praying for 24 hours a day, and they did this unbroken for 100 years. Can you imagine? Prayer chain of one person, at least praying for, for, for 24 hours a day for 100 years, and let me tell you the impact that these prayers had. The Church sent over 300 of their members overseas to missions. Places like the, the West Indies, Places such as North America, Greenland, and Turkey. Here was a church that sent over 300 of their members, and they only had 600 of these people within their community. Let me tell you that they had a zeal for missions that was unparalleled to what you see in other places. Where did it come from? It came from their their leader of them showing this desire of prompt obedience, of self-denial, of willing to give everything over to Jesus. And this community just followed suit. The church history tells us that one of the two people they sent out to the West Indies, their kind of first missionaries they sent out, they were going to the West Indies and everybody thought they were crazy. Some ways they were. To that point, 20 of 29 people died within the first year of going over to the West Indies. So this was kind of a just a saying, hey, I, I don't know if we're going to make it. The odds were against them. So as they're being set sail, as they set sail on this boat, and they look back to their family and their friends who are weeping at the reality that they will probably never see these people again. These two men sat out, and they begin to say this chant. say, let the Lamb of God who was slain receive the reward of his suffering that the Lamb of God who was slain received the reward of his suffering. Who's this man for the kind of really summed up this community, it summed up Zendendorf, and I pray that it would sum up our hearts as well. Because this Moravian church understood a principle of Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. That yes, the Lamb of God was slain. And by his blood, he purchased people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And they understood who was going to reach these people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's the church. So this Monrovian community said, send us. We want to be the ones that go out so that the Lamb of God would receive the reward of his suffering. This morning, I want to talk to you on that topic that the Lamb of God that was slain received the reward of his suffering, and how the local church plays a part in that reality. Because as you and I remember what we said, if you can come up with one word that would sum up chapter 2 and chapter 1 of Ephesians, it would be the word gospel. Chapter 1, we are told that that God has chosen us, redeemed us, forgiven us. Chapter 2 tells us the reality, points us back to that time before Christ in which we were dead in our trespasses. But the great news of the gospel... That God came down and he rose us up with Christ. He, he made us alive with Christ so that we could sit in the heavenlies forever with Jesus. He told us the immeasurable grace, this grace that can't be counted, this grace that is too big and too vast and too lofty for us to understand, has been pointed down towards us towards, with, with Jesus Christ. As you see this reality, that was the, the kind of verses 1 through th- 11 of chapter 2. And then he kind of kicks off from 11 to 22. Now he begins to talk about what what the gospel brought in this horizontal reconciliation. Not only has the gospel reconciled us to this big God, but it's reconciled us to each other. And last week, we, we heard the great news. The Jews and Gentiles now come together in one church called One New Man. He didn't create a church for the Jews on this side of town and then Gentiles for that side of the town. No, he he put these two groups who, who weren't getting along and by the power of the gospel, he placed them together into one new community called the church of Jesus Christ. As you're reading this chapter one and chapter two of all this great kindness and all this great grace and all this great news, the question we ask in chapter three is who is going to spread this good news? Good news for for all mankind that all people can be saved now through the blood of Jesus Christ, no matter if you're black or white or Hispanic or Indian or Chinese, rich or poor, all of them now can come into the body of Christ. It's great news for all people. So the question we ask is who is going to spread this great news? The answer is found in chapter three it's the church. The church has been entrusted with the hope of the world, so it's our responsibility to go proclaim it. But what we notice here in chapter three is Paul begins to talk in autobiographical terms. And as you're talking about his life and how he's been entrusted, we kind of break this passage into three different parts. He uses this word mystery, talking about the mission, the gospel how he understands it and then he begins to talk about how his love for the nation propels him as we see his love for the gentile people and lastly we see that sometimes this mission causes us to suffer but are we willing to suffer so that the lamb of god would receive the reward of his suffering in fact paul uses this word mystery it's an important word this word mystery this this greek word mysterion is, is used four different times in our text alone Tells us it's vastly important. Paul uses this word another eleven times throughout uh, his other letters. So we see this word used fifteen different times. Describe this mystery, this mysterion. We see it in Colossians chapter one, where he says this mystery has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but, but now has been disclosed to to the saints. But what is this mystery? Mystery is told to us in verse 6. Look at what it says in this passage. What is this mystery, this, this mysterion in which he's talking? He says this mystery is this. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. In other words, what he's saying, this mystery, is, is exactly what he told us last week in verses 11 to 22, that this great news is God is pursuing all people. The great news of this mystery is now it's been revealed to the church The Gentiles and Jews are, are, are both in equal ground under the cross of Jesus Christ, and now salvation is available to all people. This is the great news. The mystery of, of what he's talking about is the equality of salvation to all mankind. But what's so crazy to me is who this mystery was entrusted to. First of all, it's Paul. Just, just think about that for a second. We, we have this man who's a, a, what he calls a Hebrew of Hebrews before Jesus. He's a Pharisee. He's, he's the one who, who separates himself and takes great pride in being separate from, from the Gentiles. A man who, who does not like the Gentiles. In fact, he, he hates them. And yet God gets a hold of this man and transforms his heart and entrusts this message to the Gentiles that now they're all equals and they get to, to be accepted into the family of God as well. Is that not just baffling to your mind? This this racist man who doesn't like the Gentile people, he hates them, is the one who Jesus says, I'm going to transform your heart. And man, did he do it. You look at Paul's life and you see this grace, this this power to transform the most hardened of hearts. When God gets a hold of his heart, you see this man now love the Gentiles to the point of him literally giving his life. For this mission, this mystery. I think we often forget how shocking this is. That that this man named Paul would be entrusted with this mystery. And now he says he's going to entrust it with us. And watch our hearts change and transform. As we grow in our hunger and love for the nations. So yes, the Lamb of God would receive the reward of his suffering. But let's go back to this mystery idea that was kept hidden. Look at what it says in, in verses uh, four through five. It says, "When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was made known to the sons of men in other er, was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit." You see what he's saying there. He's saying that this, this mystery is it was was kind of hidden in the Old Testament. Yes, we saw aspects of it, but but it wasn't revealed in its fullest sense. But as we see God's heart for the nations, specifically in the New Testament, we look back into the old, we see his heart from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 12, what does God say to Abraham? He says, through you, Abraham, I'm going to use you to bless all people. Right there, one of the, the, the fir- very one of the first covenants, right after the Abrahamic cov- or the right after Noah's covenant, we, we see this Abrahamic covenant, and through that we see that, that Abraham is going to be the one, that through his line he's going to be a blessing to all people, and little did we know that it was going to come through Jesus Christ. But you begin to see this grafting in of the nations throughout the Old Testament. Remember Rahab. Canaanite, you remember Ruth, a Moabite, remember King Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian, all come to saving faith, so we see this grafting of the nations into the family of God, this exclamation point that yes, God loves all people, but yet we see it in its fullest sense right here. You see in its fullest sense through Jesus Christ and his life here in which it says in John three sixteen that God so loved the world. He didn't even just love the Jews, but it says God so loved the world that he would send his only son. Anybody who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You see the radical nature of the new covenant in which, yes, all people... Whether you're Asian or Australian or African or North Korean, whoever it might be, if they simply repent of their sins, even if they're a previous enemy of God, if they simply repent of their sins and turn to Jesus, they'll be saved and grafted into the family of God for all of eternity. That that's the mystery people don't know this mystery yet again we ask the question then that, 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 that if we see this shocking nature that this, this one gentiles who who when they come would see this big wall of hostility not able to kind of even go in close to be able to worship with the jews and yet what he's saying in this passage that wall has been destroyed We didn't even cover it last week, but at the end of chapter 2, it talks about this idea that God's Spirit now indwells His church. Once people who are distant, kept off, are now indwelt with the Spirit. Terrific news. But but whose responsibility is to pass it on? In fact, what I find so interesting is even this use of this word mysterion, word is vastly important but yet what's so crazy is he would even choose to use it in the first place you have to understand in the in the world of Ephesus to 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 the Ephesian people this word was really used of false teachings it was used of cults used of secretive groups kind of knew this word mysterion is we we see it in Daniel for this eschatological kind of of meaning but but yet he's writing to to the Greeks it's so writing to the people of Ephesus who, who in their meaning was, was what they're thinking when they hear this word mysterion is they're thinking of these false cults in which they would have to do kind of these kind of rituals, these, these things to be able to get into the group and that's when they get this mystery revealed to them. Think of kind of like a fraternity who has to do this initiation process with well, maybe a special handshake or something strange in which they could now be brought into the group. It's only those people in the group that hear the news. They don't want anybody on the outside hearing the news. So this is kind of how this word was used. Secretive group, false cults that kept the message in. So the question we ask is why does Paul use this word? I think he does so for a very specific reason. He wants to show us the drastic difference of Christianity compared to the false religions of that day and in our day as well. He's, he's using this cultic word in almost a non-cultic fashion. He's using this word that he's saying, Hey, I, I understand you, people of Ephesus. I understand that, you, that when you hear this word, you're thinking of these secretive groups, but that's not Christianity. Look I at mean, what he says in, our, in, in verse 9: He says, I, I wish that this message would be, would be given to all people, that it would be brought to light for everyone, that everyone would hear this message. And again, this makes sense that Paul wants this message to be brought out for everybody because this message is for everybody. And if it is for everybody, the question is, how is it going to reach every soul? It's the church. It's the church. Which then leads implications to you and me. And this message of this mystery that God can save all people, if they simply repent and turn to him, that eternity is offered to them. Who is going to reach these people from every tribe and tongue and nation? It is the church. It's you and it is me. And when we see this nature of what it means for us to have this privilege, it it should give us a sense of urgency. Give us a sense of responsibility. Give us a sense of awe that God would entrust us with this mission. In fact, we see this so clearly throughout scriptures. Colossians chapter 1, using the same word, it says, The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations now has been disclosed to the saints. Paul goes on to say, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery. What is he saying? This mystery has been disclosed to us and now it's our responsibility to, to proclaim it to the nations. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 as well. It says this, that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare or proclaim the praises of him who called you corinthians chapter 5 verse 20 it says therefore Christ's ambassadors though that we are Christ's ambassadors as though god were making his appeal through us matthew chapter 28 go therefore make disciples of all nations it is our responsibility so much so that we see this the robert a professor at a talbot theological seminary he passed away but he writes this he says the primary purpose of the church in relation to the world is evangelism the confusion of this present church concerning her purpose is difficult to understand in light of the unequivocal command of the Lord to his church. It's us. And I know when we hear this word evangelism, we all kind of tense up a little bit. Especially me, I'm an introvert. When I hear this word, I freeze. But as we see what it means for us to be able to be evangelists, let me just give you a couple ways in which we can do this in normal life. What I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to start with the very easy. I'm going to move along to what it looks like for us to be even called maybe to overseas. First thing is this. We can can learn how to evangelize in, in everyday situations of what we're already doing. Imagine if we're on social media Maybe you're kind of big into that area in which you say, okay, how how can I post something that would show the glory of who my God is to to the people that are are, are my followers? What can I post that would show the the beauty of the gospel or the beauty of my king? Maybe it's a blog, maybe it's a Bible verse, whatever it might be, would we be using this as a platform in our day and age to be able to spread the goodness of who our Jesus is? Because we see people, they're posting about what they eat over their Friday night dinner. They post about what, they, what movie they saw. What if we begin to post about our greatest joy? To be able to use this as a vehicle. So, so maybe for you, it looks like for you to be this one who, who spreads this mystery to the nations. It, it's simply just posting a blog or, or, or that you found that kind of points to the, the glory of who our Jesus is. Maybe tomorrow as you go back to work, the question that's going to be asked of you is, how was your weekend? And you're going to have this opportunity to say, hey, maybe maybe I've been reading this book. Yeah, I had a great week, but I've been reading this book, and it's, it's really teaching me this about God. I've seen this. this God has this love for the nation. And it's kind of moving in my own heart. You have the opportunity to speak that when they ask you about your weekend." Maybe you say I've been I mean, listening to the sermon and, and then I've then, then seen this, this new character trait of my God. He's this merciful God. He's, he's slow to anger, compassion, and steadfast love. See, I, I think when we think of evangelism, it has to be this moment in which we kind of confront somebody. But, but really, it begins in these conversations. When we begin to open up about these conversations, it opens us up to talk more about our God, which then elitist leads to us sharing the great news of the gospel with them. So so maybe you're here and you're thinking this evangelism thing is so hard and difficult for me. But what I see in this passage from Paul is I see his heart for the nations grow as his love for his God grows and his love for people begins to grow. In other words, the way that I begin to grow in my own love for evangelism is my love for my God and my love for other people. And as I begin to see this love grow within me, then I begin to to be willing to give my life so that they can hear this message. In fact, what's so crazy about this passage is his love is so clear for the Gentile people, is it not? We see it very clearly in verse 3 in which it says that he was a prisoner. He says, he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you, the Gentiles. Well, what is he saying there? In essence, he is in jail when he's writing this letter and why did he get in jail? He got in jail because he was proclaiming the great news to the Gentile people and the Jews didn't like it. So so here he is, he's writing from jail which shows his great love. He's saying, I'm willing to even be sent to jail so that you can hear this message. Later on in verse 13, he says, this, this suffering is on behalf of your glory. You see, his great love, we see it so clearly, and yet on the opposite end of the spectrum, if we don't love people, it's going to be incredibly difficult for us to share the great news with them. Just look at Jonah, and Jonah's struggling in his heart to the Ninevites, and he's saying, hey, I want to I go in the exact opposite direction because I know, God, you're going to be gracious to these people, and I don't want it to take place. He's struggling in his love. So I ask you, how is your love doing for for the nations? Do you you have a heart for them? Does your heart break that people don't hear this great news? Are you moved to, to go within our community and reach people because you know they need to hear this message? Maybe your heart's not there yet. Would you be willing to pray that God would instill within you a heart for the nations? Because we know it's capable. He took Paul's heart, radically transforms it, and gives them this great heart for for, for all people groups. Would you be willing to pray that that God would do the same thing within your own heart? In fact, I'm reminded of of a man by the name of William Booth. You understand him. He's the founder of Salvation Army. One of the stories is he, he takes his son, who was 12 years old at the time, He takes them to East London, in which was kind of his missionary group, and the people of East London was just a mess. The east side of London at this time was those who were were, were the most sinful. And he's taking his 12-year-old son, walking through the streets of this, this, this part of London. People are drunk beyond comprehension. He sees these ladies who are barely dressed. He sees little kids at the age of 12 that have already gin bottles in their hands. And you should see his son, his eyes begin to light up in what he's seen. And all of them, and his father begins to see he's kind of disgusted at what he's seen. He doesn't know how to comprehend what he's seen. And in this disgust, he looks down at these people in such a prideful way. And his dad turns to him in this moment. He says, these are my people. I want to give my life for them so that they can have Christ. You see what he's saying? He's saying Jesus has died for them. Jesus was slain on their behalf, so, so if I don't go tell them about the great news of Jesus, who will? Is that your heart? Is this your longing so that other people can hear the great news of who Jesus is? So we see that in this passage, we, we, we see this understanding of Paul's heart begin to, to radically change as he's given this mystery to go spread the great news of Jesus. So we see this great love for these people, but we also see this willingness to suffer on their behalf. Kind of go hand in hand together. When he's loving these people, he's willing to suffer on their behalf. And, and the question I ask you this morning is, who are we willing to suffer for? that other people can see the beauty of who Jesus is. Many ways for us to suffer, maybe it's our reputation. Maybe you don't want to be known as the Jesus person at work. For those of you, it might be being sent over to to overseas missions. God has called you, he's given you this desire to go share the news with, with people groups that they've never heard the name of Jesus. And maybe for you, you're willing to say, yes, I am willing to suffer on behalf of them so that, yes, the Lamb of God would receive the reward of his suffering. That was Zindendorf. This was the Moravian church. They had this longing and this hunger to be able to proclaim the news to the West Indies people. They loved the West Indies people in which they left their own families behind so that they can reach these people group with the great news of Jesus Christ. And this is Paul, Right? This is Paul's desire, his life. He's he's literally laying down it all for the sake of the Gentile people in the nation so that they would hear the great news of Jesus Christ. In fact, just last night I was reading this kind of uh, biography that John Piper kind of put together recently. It's kind of old books that he kind of slown together. One of the things that struck me in all of this was a man, Adoniram Judson, And Aaron Johnson, I don't know, I've talked to him about him a long time ago in which he wrote this crazy note to his wife, Anne Hasseltine. at the time. She literally said, are you willing to give it all for the sake of Jesus Christ? Strangely, she says yes. But man, did that man suffer. Stories told as he's trying to kind of raise money on behalf of his mission trip he goes and he's trying to set sail to England to try of raise money for, for the Baptist organization that they would send these missionaries out and on his way he gets captured by this French boat and literally gets put in prison all, uh, at the very beginning. And you're thinking, man, here he is, he's trying to raise money to go over to Burma to be able to pray, proclaim the good news and he's already put into prison. He finally gets out, he heads over to Burma and his time in Burma was, was difficult and hard. The way John Piper describes it, that this was man was a seed that literally died each and every day, that it would produce a harvest in time. When he was in Burma, there's 110 plus degrees at the time. They would probably call it, uh, conclude that it was a closed country. They were in warfare constantly. It was a dangerous place to be. He goes there, Britain kind of bombs the place at the time, and then all of a sudden they think that Adoniram Judson is a spy, so they throw him into prison once again. Here he is in Burma, his wife, he brings her over there, she gets pregnant, she's pregnant at the time, and she's having to, 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 to literally hike two miles a day to see her husband who is in prison. And they didn't treat him kindly. Every night they would tie his feet up in which only that was laying on the ground was his back and his head, and everything else was tied up. He was in that, this nightly position for over 17 months. He finally gets released. His wife passes away. Six months later, his, his child that was just born passes away. And at this time, you're thinking, why does he even just give it all up? Listen to what he writes he says, "Beware of the greater reaction which will take place after you are acquired the language and you become fatigued and worn out with preaching the gospel to a disobedient and gainsaying people. You will sometimes long for a quiet retreat, where you will find a respite, a respite, from the tug of toiling at native work, the incessant, intolerable friction of the missionary grindstone, and Satan will sympathize with you in this, in this matter. And he will present some chapel of ease in which you can officiate in your native tongue, some government situation, some professorship or editorship, some literary or scientific pursuit, some, some other kind of work in translation or at least some system of schools, anything in a word that will help you leave what God has called you to do. And I look at this life. I look at it, what he had to suffer. Seven of his 13 children passed away in the mission field. Two of his three wives passed away in the mission field. And if he went up to you and asked for advice in this situation, what would you tell him? My instinct is to say, give it all up. 18 years until he sees this revival take place. Took six years just to get his first convert, and he's suffering greatly. I, I think I would just tell him go back. And oh, so thankful that I was not there to give him advice. This man understood that he was going to give his life for the Burmese people, and imagine what these people in heaven are now looking back and saying towards him. Thank you. Thank you for giving your all so I can have eternity with Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving up this tiny little time in your life in which I can now live with you for all of eternity in heaven. In fact, we see the harvest of 3,700 congregations now in Burma because of this man's work. What is God laying on your heart this morning? What is God calling you to? Maybe it's simply just walking across to the to the office next to you at work. Person God has laid on your heart that you can share it with him the great news of what this mystery is all about. Because what takes place, as we see in this passage, verse 10, look at what it says that, that now the church proclaims the manifold wisdom to Satan and his demons. In other words, what he's writing there in verse 10 is he's saying that, that Satan and his demons, what they thought when they put Jesus in the cross that they'd won. They thought it was over. They thought that they had victory. But then they saw the church of Jesus Christ. And they realized that Jesus died for this. They see God's wisdom beyond comprehension as he grasped in all people groups. You've seen what that verse is saying? It's saying that when when we become the church of Jesus Christ in our multicultural and all races and all cultures joined together, it shouts to the spiritual realm of God's great wisdom that he has purchased people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this is us. Every time we gather together on a Sunday morning, it shouts that our King is wise and he is gracious and he is great. Do you see that? Do you see the great news that we now get to share this with everybody? This news is for all people, so who is going to proclaim this news to all people? It's you. And it's me. We get the privilege. God has graced us with it. So let's be moved to give our everything so that the Lamb of God who was slain would receive the reward of his suffering. God, I'm thankful. God, I'm thankful that you have saved us. God, I'm thankful that you sent your son on our behalf. I'm thankful that we get the church body to be together. God, I'm thankful for this family in this room. God, we want to be moved together. We got big dreams and aspirations, but we know it only happens with you. So, God, would you raise up people who are hungry for the nations in this room? God, even might right now that you might put a calling on somebody's heart that they would go overseas and they would be burdened to share this great news. And God, maybe right now you're stirring in somebody's heart. Maybe you've got a family member or, or a coworker that needs to hear this message. Would you embolden them to graciously be able to share this great news with other people? God, we're thankful for your church use your church it's all about you and for your glory we pray these things in your name